Episode 29, Misrepresenting McCord's Misconduct. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. James McCord should have been from the outset a truly engrossing and engaging character, even if he himself did not have a personally engaging manner. But the originally tight-lipped, supposedly retired CIA veteran stayed far under the public's radar before his dramatic letter to Judge Sirica, read aloud by the court at his sentencing hearing on March 23, 1973. What should have interested the media, led by the Post, in McCord? Woodward answers this question partially when he tells us in All the President's Men that he audibly gasped when McCord, after telling the court at his June 17 arraignment that he was retired from the government, then softly whispered to the court, almost as if in confidence, CIA. Why should this odd dialogue have triggered any reaction in an alert reporter? Well, let's stop and think slowly here for a moment. Woodward knew that none of the burglars had made a telephone call that night. All five burglars had clear, undeniable CIA connections, and all had been operatives on the abortive Bay of Pigs operation. So when McCord whispered CIA to the judge, was he expecting that the agency would eventually hook up with the court and prosecutors and quietly release five men arrested on a busted CIA mission? That's what it seemed like. Certainly the exchange should have at least raised that question, but it did not, at least according to the Post reporting. McCord also had an odd path to becoming a burglar. Because Hunt was hired by the White House for, quote, sensitive assignments, unquote, it was easily understood how the White House could have enlisted him in an unlawful, rogue operation. In effect, to some extent, this was his job, much like his work on clandestine CIA operations. But McCord was simply a CRP security man with a distinguished law-abiding career. If that is what this was, so easily... Would an Air Force Reserve Colonel, a patriot, former FBI man, then longtime CIA security official, have become a burglar in order to make a modest salary with the re-election campaign? This incongruence was not ever explored by the Post. Furthermore, oddly, McCord had been with the OS within the CIA, that is the Office of Security. He had ostensibly been hired by the re-election committee, not the White House, his employment having nothing to do with Hunt. But Hunt was also a former OS man. Moreover, both Hunt and McCord had worked with the Cuban burglars on the Bay of Pigs. Wasn't it odd that McCord was hired while Hunt was working at the White House? And presumably with no intervention by Hunt or Hunt's sponsor, Colson. And he was hired nine months before Watergate, so he was not named security director, at least as far as the Republicans were concerned, specifically to work on Watergate. Was it just coincidence that shortly following Hunt's, quote, retirement, unquote, from the OS and his hire by the White House, that McCord, quote, retired, unquote, from the OS and was hired by the CRP, the election arm of the White House. All of this, of course, is broadly circumstantial background, but still and yet background that should have inspired questions in the Post. 
Of course, as we have noted in previous segments, there had already been an agreement with the Post not to reveal Mullen's status. Was there a similar agreement to lay off the CIA? Now let's fast forward to McCord's statements after his written rant to Sirica. He soon thereafter explained to the Post that he thought the Watergate operation was legal as a presidentially approved national security mission. After all, he told the Post, John Mitchell, then Attorney General, he understood, had approved it. Now, McCord did not say that this was a CIA, underlined CIA, national security operation. But again, let's think about this. You have seven former CIA operatives on a national security operation, at least as posited by McCord. Wouldn't it also make sense that it was likely a CIA national security operation? Wouldn't a veteran CIA man have asked, what about this operation made it a seeming national security operation? Of course he would have. And if, as McCord testified later, he was to tap DNC Director Larry O'Brien's phone and another Democrat at the team's discretion, exactly how did this seem to be about national security? Were they listening for spy talk? Of course not. And McCord never said that. Moreover, according to Baldwin's coached testimony, they were looking for, quote, hot political gossip at the direction of McCord. But how is this about national security? The answer is that at least as described by McCord and Baldwin, it would not be. If he had described the true, likely national security purpose, pillow talk, this would be inconsistent with anything that the White House would want and would have pointed to the CIA. McCord not only told the Post this story, but he testified to it as well. But please remember that he was testifying to this undescribed national security operation that was to occur during the same time frame that Jeb Magruder was describing that Mitchell had ordered him to break into the DNC's headquarter for campaign purposes. Was it Magruder McCord's boss? Magruder said nothing about national security. How can these two pieces of testimony be considered to be consistent? To respond, they cannot be. Except, of course, by one explanation, which the Post would not touch. That is, both Magruder and the CIA were after sexual dirt. The Post reporters knew from Baldwin that he was monitoring salacious talk. They knew that Hunt was operating under a Mullen CIA cover contract. Of course, the Post had enough information to know that the national security purpose was listening to naughty talk, and whether Magruder knew it was a CIA operation or not, he knew that the burglars had in fact been listening to such talk in the first several weeks. In fact, it was likely that McCord did not think that this work was illegal. This was a man, as James Jesus Angleton said, the famous mole hunter of the CIA, McCord did everything while wrapped in an American flag. So to wrap up this section, wouldn't the foregoing have been enough for the Post to at least raise the issue of a CIA operation if, in fact, the paper was on the up and up and had cut no deal with the CIA or Mullen? Yes, this all smells, you might say, but aren't we second-guessing the paper using the 2020 vision known as hindsight? If this was all there is, we might grant that point, at least by admitting that we are talking about circumstantial evidence that is at least arguable. And, after all, notwithstanding the Post claim to be omniscient, daily newspapers are, as Deep Throat told Woodward, shallow and superficial. But the background we have here elucidated should surely have informed and provided context for more direct, concrete evidence. 
One such piece of evidence that the Post should have considered and reported on is the statement of D.C. Intelligence Officer Gary Bittenbender, who questioned McCord at jail before arraignment, later questioning him further in his jail cell. McCord told Bittenbender, according to Bittenbender, that he, McCord, had been on a CIA mission. This is consistent with McCord's whispered response to the court, believing, as Hunt later wrote in his book, in the CIA's normal assistance of extricating its blown agents from prosecution. It is also consistent with McCord's otherwise head-scratching claim that he understood that this to have been a national security operation. Was Bittenbender clearly claiming that McCord said this to him? Yes. In McCord's five trial status notes to the CIA, as trial approached in December 1972 and early January 1973, McCord reported that, in fact, Bittenbender was going to testify to that. We add that McCord also noted that such testimony would be a lie. Certainly, McCord would have learned of Bittenbender's statement from the discovery process. I have read Bittenbender's FBI statements which do not say this directly, but refer to an MPD, that is to say Metropolitan Police Department, statement, which Bittenbender also submitted, apparently a lengthy statement, gained from his interview of McCord in his jail cell. We also assume that the prosecutors likely questioned Bittenbender directly, for which we would have no record, and perhaps the grand jury as well, from which statements cannot be released except to the defendants in discovery. So our point here is that Bittenbender clearly made the statement. Now, the matter is still unresolved, at least according to McCord, as to whether it was true or not that McCord had said that to Bittenbender. McCord was questioned in the Irvin hearings about Bittenbender's statement. Clearly, the Senate knew of the statement and asked about it in its questioning. And McCord did not dispute in response that Bittenbender had made the statement but simply claimed that Bittenbender was mistaken as to what McCord had told him. Unlike his earlier notes to the CIA, he no longer tried to claim that Bittenbender had been lying. Bittenbender must have been mistaken, McCord testified, because he knew me from my liaison with him in my CIA job, McCord said. He must have been confused and assumed I was working in my CIA job. But as we asked in an earlier episode, how likely is it that a trained intelligence officer like Bittenbender would be so clearly mistaken? And since McCord likely thought at the time that this would be claimed to be a legal CIA operation, not having talked to the agency after his arrest, his statement to Bittenbender would have corroborated his defense of lack of criminal intent. That is, his statement to Bittenbender that this was a CIA operation was not at the time an admission against McCord's interests, but rather a statement to corroborate McCord's defense of a national security operation. Now, of course, as we have noted, the CA chose not to go that route. Now let's mention Shane O'Sullivan, author of the book Dirty Tricks, much of it about Watergate. He claims, oddly, Biddenbender never made such a written statement, likely relying on its lack of direct repetition in FBI statements while ignoring the MPD statement that was referenced in FBI reports. He also ignores the acceptance by both McCord and the Democratic senators that Biddenbender gave the statement we here describe. 
though O'Sullivan is way off on this. The only defense is that offered by McCord. Bittenbender must have been confused and mistaken. When I read McCord's Senate testimony, I was under the impression, conveyed by McCord, that McCord had maintained a long relationship of many years liaising with Bittenbender, who I therefore assumed was a longtime veteran. But I note that Biddenbender had been an intelligence officer for just a bit under three years at the time of the arrest. I also note the statements of McCord's deputy, Penny Gleason, that McCord and Bittenbender had been very tight professional friends during McCord's tenure with the CRP. So Bittenbender was not confused about McCord's present employment. And he was such a close friend of McCord during his CRP employment that Bittenbender visited Gleason later that day to commiserate about McCord's arrest. He was concerned about his friend. So no, Bittenbender was not confused or mistaken. I had also been under the impression from McCord's testimony that Bittenbender had nothing more than an initial short inquiry with McCord prior to arraignment. But in going back to the statements, I note that Bittenbender visited McCord in jail after arraignment, having also spoken to him before arraignment, and when visiting him after arraignment, conducted a more detailed interview at his jail cell. Because the interview was presumably about national security, I have not seen it published. But, to repeat, McCord acknowledged that Bittenbender's written statement said what we are saying it said. Now again, let's pause and ponder. If McCord really said what Bittenbender said he said, putting aside all our other evidence we have adduced then Watergate was not, repeat not, a campaign operation. Dean and Magruder may have wanted naughty conversations for their own intelligence, portfolios, an ambition that Dean candidly admits in his aptly titled book, Blind Ambition. But by the same token, this was not about the campaign. And if not about the campaign, the entire thrust of the narrative put forth by the Post and its Watergate reporting was false, period. But there's more for us to consider. We have talked about Penny Gleason's statement to the FBI about McCord's autographed portrait of Helms inscribed with deep appreciation, with the word deep underlined twice. Certainly Post reporters knew of Gleason's existence, and likely knew FBI agents had interviewed her. But if the reporters did interview her, as they did with most FBI interviewees, they certainly did not report the results. After McCord testified to the Senate about the existence of of Bittenbender's statement, the paper felt compelled to add its two cents so as to negate the force of a clear statement by an intelligence officer, one provided to the defense, including McCord's lawyer, Gerald Alch. So Bittenbender's statement was clearly one provided to McCord by Alch within the discovery process. How would the Post support McCord's claim that Bittenbender must have been mistaken? All it ever said about this devastating statement by Bittenbender was this brief blurb of May 23, 1973, placed on page 12. Quote, McCord testified that Alt mentioned during the December 21 lunch that Metropolitan Police Intelligence Officer Gary Bittenbender had, quote, purportedly claimed, unquote, that McCord told him the break-in was a CIA operation. Inspector Albert Ferguson, chief of intelligence for the Metropolitan Police, said yesterday that Bittenbender's notes indicate only that he knew McCord was a former CIA agent, not that he had been told the break-in was a CIA operation. Unquote. 
you will glean from this article that neither Captain Ferguson nor the Post dispute that Bittenbender provided the interview report we here describe, but only that Ferguson claimed Bittenbender's notes don't reflect the officer's subsequent written statement. Clearly, the Post is trying to assist what we know to be McCord's deceit. As between an honest Bittenbender, who considered himself a friend of McCord, and McCord, who was covering for his agency, we will take Bittenbender all day. So it appears clear that the Post is trying to aid McCord in his deceit about Bittenbender. Still and yet, it is possible for the Post to claim innocence about McCord if all we have is the kerfuffle about Bittenbender's statement. But that becomes impossible once we focus on the mysterious Lee Pennington. We should here remind you that it was one Lee Pennington who picked up McCord at jail after the arrestee made bail. Why is this significant for our purposes of examining post-journalism? Well, first, with the post-highly touted, bragged about jailhouse reporters and police sources, the post knew about this pickup immediately. The FBI, we know, learned of this man known as Pennington, his name noted in police records. While the FBI was doing its job of finding out who Pennington was, wouldn't the Post have performed its basic function of simply reporting the fact of McCord's pickup by Pennington? But it did not do that. The FBI, as we note, was intensely interested in Pennington's identity. And given Woodward's close relationship with Mark Felt, wouldn't Felt have disclosed the FBI's investigative hypothesis that Pennington was McCord's CIA handler? Felt treats Pennington in his 1979 book as involving an important inquiry for the FBI. Wouldn't Felt have disclosed his suspicion to Woodward? It seems likely. Several agents, in addition to Felt, knew of the August 18, 1972, by FBI Special Agent Donald Parham to the CIA to identify any CIA agent named Pennington. So, again, Woodstein could and would easily have found out about this inquiry from one of its many FBI contacts, and they likely did. But nothing about Pennington was reported. Felt concluded shortly after the burglary that this was a White House operation, a CIA operation, or both. It is highly probable that Felt did not hide this from Woodward, especially since Felt wanted some publicity about the connections of the burglars so as to ensure that the FBI's investigation would not be whitewashed, thus smudging his beloved bureau. That is precisely the reason that Felt told Woodward about Hunt's apparent White House connections. It would shine a light on the FBI's investigation and make sure it stayed open. Wouldn't Felt have also given Woodward the same tip about Pennington? And in any case, the pickup by Pennington would have been available from the police and the many sources that the Post had at the jailhouse. And when Felt learned that the CIA had given the FBI the name of a clearly uninvolved agent, Cecil Pennington, Felt was clearly angered. But throughout Felt's time in the Bureau, ending June 1973, the Post published nothing about Pennington. All of this makes for a strong circumstantial case that the Post concealed all facts about Pennington. This would be a strong indictment of the Post if this is all we have to offer. But there is, as in many of the other issues under our microscope, a capper, definite proof not only of the Post's knowledge of Pennington's status, 
but of intentional post-cover-up of this important fact of Pennington's involvement. That proof came to the Post, at least by early July 1974. Around July 2, 1974, as we discussed in an earlier episode, Senator Howard Baker issued his succinct 49-page minority report, pithy compared to the 1,100-page monstrosity put forth by the majority. In early 1974, an honest CIA security officer busted the CIA's attempted obstruction of Senate requests for Watergate documents. One of them stated quite clearly that one Lee Pennington, a CIA contractor, had gone to McCord's house after arrest while McCord was still in jail to help Mrs. McCord burn documents showing McCord's connections to the CIA. Since McCord's past, underlined past, employment by the agency was not in dispute. The only meaning of this tableau was concealment of McCord's present CIA status. The Baker report was perfectly clear on this obvious point. This was not simply a conclusion of the Baker report, but was a direct finding by the CIA itself, underlined for emphasis in the documents it gave to the Senate. Therefore, we have another set-in-stone marker of post-deceit. If the Post reported this matter fully, the paper would have shown that McCord had a CIA handler who destroyed documents to hide McCord's then-present CIA undercover agency and he would have reported that the CIA had obstructed justice to hide Pennington from investigators. Did the paper do so? We will let you be the judge. Before we quote the post-rendition of the Baker report on this matter, we note that Pennington had been an FBI agent many, many years earlier, leaving the Bureau in the early 1950s. With that in mind, here is how Lawrence Sturd reported this unambiguous finding of the Baker report, again reporting an unambiguous finding of the CIA itself. We quote from a July 2, 1974 Post article by Stern about Pennington's actions. Now this quote references former CIA Security Director Howard Osborne, published on page 8 on July 2, 1974. The former CIA security director provided misleading information to the FBI on the identity of a former federal investigator, let me interject, that's supposed to be Pennington, let me go back to the quote, who helped Watergate burglar James McCord Jr.'s wife destroy CIA records at their home immediately after her husband's arrest, unquote. Note first that Pennington is described as a, quote, former federal investigator, unquote, not a present CIA contractor. Is the Post trying to hide these records were destroyed by the CIA? Of course. Also note that through this quote, the Post suppresses the real evidence of CIA agency that Pennington saga shows, since the, quote, CIA records, unquote, were records of McCord's present connection to the agency not past CIA records. This was the Post and Stern's take on what the Baker Report said. This clearly deceitful rendition of the Baker Report proves far more than false reporting about Baker's strongly supported conclusion about Pennington and McCord. It also strongly corroborates circumstantially that the Post had been avoiding reporting about Pennington for two years. The conclusions of the Baker Report are in black and white, and the Post does not report honestly about them in July 1974. It is likely they had also been suppressing evidence before this. 
And by so doing, the Post is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of hiding evidence of McCord's CIA agency, which Pennington's involvement proves. If this is so, and the Post also hid evidence of the Maxie Wells Spencer Oliver target, of Hunt's cover contract, and of Baldwin's salacious overhearings, we can conclude that the Post knowingly, willfully, intentionally, with premeditation and deliberation, kept its readers deceived, and yes, leaving democracy to die in darkness. Now we believe the evidence of Post's deceit regarding McCord clearly solves yet another mystery of Watergate. But we further note that the upcoming episodes reporting first about Lou Russell and Michael Stevens, and secondly about Gordon Liddy, all also bear upon post-concealment of McCourt's undercover status. But before we get to those, just looking at Bittenbender and Pennington and their treatment by the Post, evidence we have presented is enough for a post-conviction beyond all reasonable doubt. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.